0: Welcome to the Inside the Boards Study Smarter Series, dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer, so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of our Study Smarter Series for Inside the Boards. My name's Mariah. I'm one of your hosts today, and with me today, I have Stuart Bryant, who's one of the co-founders of Inside the Boards. How are you doing, Stuart?
0: I'm doing well. I'm, uh, you know, getting through and um, heading to Hawaii next for a big change in my life. So I matched in orthopedics. I think that's new since I've last recorded with everyone.
1: Oh, congratulations.
0: You know, that's a big change, obviously. Uh, But my year during COVID working paid off. So I'm really excited about that and uh, ready for the next step. How are things going with you, Mariah?
1: Well, firstly, congrats. I'm really happy to hear that. And I'm sure Hawaii will be a lot of fun. Um, Things are good for me, too. Thank you. I'm just still rotating in my for my third year rotations in Elmhurst Hospital, so everything is good on my end. Thank you.
0: Yeah, and you said you're actually going to have a short orthopedic rotation. Is that elective, or do you have to do that?
1: We have to do that through the hospital I'm at, so I'll have two weeks of orthopedic surgery, so I'll see what it's like to be in your shoes.
0: <laughs> yeah, you'll have to let me know if you have questions or need help with anything.
1: So. For sure. Thank you.
0: And I think in that on that note, we're gonna do some um, skin and muscle kind of type questions for step one, right?
1: Yes. Yeah, so today we're going to focus on MSK and derm, and go through a few questions, and I run through each of the answer choices and just explain our uh, our thought process for the questions.
0: Yeah, I'm happy to lend any advice. I know this is step one oriented. So, um, you know, the more uh, little details that we can provide that are helpful pearls for students, the better, right?
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Okay, so let's see how we can do with this.
1: I will read the questions. And then if you want, you can um, let me know how you'd tackle these questions. Sure. Awesome. So, and also this is taken from the Stat Pearls Question Bank. Firstly, we have... A 17-year-old who presents to the office with a 4 by 6 centimeter lesion on his anterior shin with disruption of the epidermis and serous exudate from a moist dermal surface. Which of the following items of history or exam would suggest a diagnosis other than abrasion? So the options we have are A, a history of a fall while running, B, the presence of fibers and sand in the lesion, C a linear pattern with some capillary b- bleeding where the wound appears deeper or D similar lesions elsewhere some with intact boulay
0: Okay so this is um an interesting question because it's actually asking you what what else would you think that would concern you uh so you know we could talk a little bit about abrasions first if you want Murad but uh, you're you're expecting an abrasion under what kind of circumstance in your mind?
1: Normally, some sort of injury, trauma, scratch. Yeah,
0: so I mean, let's the easy answer is just like a trauma, like a, a scrape or cut. Uh, you think of like a you know young kids playing or uh, you know someone roughhousing, and, and then you think of um, you know wounds from bike wrecks, uh, car wrecks, things like that, uh, where they might have like some sort of skin against some sort of surface causing a trauma, right?
1: Right. Exactly.
0: So in, in this case, you know, you have a, a patient with a lesion and it's on their shin. You can imagine that if they just like fell and scuffed their shin, that that's going to be a basic trauma. And Uh, you know, maybe not a big deal, but maybe a wound that you want to take seriously, uh, make sure they have proper first aid, but we can think about things that would be like, well, you know, what if they weren't coming to you with the presentation of having fallen? Or what if this patient just showed up and says, you know, I just had this lesion all of a sudden, uh, and they, they're not sure how they got it. And then you're starting to think of like, what would be other reasons that this could have occurred? Right. Mm Mm-hmm. So in the case of a, a, a lesion here, like a history of a fall while running, that's, that's going to be like your classic scenario where you're expecting this. Uh, so I, I wouldn't think that that's going to change your diagnosis to something other than abrasion, right? Presence of fiber, sand, uh, you know, dirt or other items like kind of in the lesion, like if they had fallen on some rocks and there was still bits of sand or grains of sand in it, uh, you know, that also backs up a diagnosis of an abrasion. Um, it's funny to call that a diagnosis just because it seems so simple, but here we're going to try to dissect it, right? And then uh, a linear pattern with capillary bleeding but a deeper wound potentially. So what are they talking about when they're, they're mentioning that linear pattern?
1: I'm guessing like skeletal muscle?
0: Yeah, I, I, it's more of like this, uh, you think of like a, a scuff. you know. It moves in a direction. It has a directionality of the injury uh, that allows the, the wound to be um, caused from you know, one point to the other. You can see how it's dragged and cut the skin, skin deeper, for instance. Uh, All of those sound very close to what something that you would talk about having with an abrasion. The curious question or answer choice here um, is, you know, similar lesions elsewhere, some with intact bullae. How do you describe, like, what would you describe a bullae as?
1: I see. Okay. Like a blistery looking thing. Normally we we learn about bullae with certain types of disorders, but it's more of like a systemic thing rather than a one place type of deal, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, exactly. So in this case, this patient is have or this choice, they have bulle that are intact and located elsewhere. So that that can be kind of concerning that this is not you know related to some scuff or bruise. Uh, what are some disorders that you think of with uh, bulle?
1: Um, a few that we normally talk about in school are like bullous impetigo, toxic epidermal necro necrolysis, the pemphigoid. What was it called again?
0: Vulgaris, yeah.
1: Pemphigoid vulgaris, and those ones are normally the ones that happen in different parts of the body.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and yeah, and those are considered you know, very different from a, an abrasion that's occurring in the setting of a trauma, right? And you know, we could go into some of those disorders. So. Pemphigus vulgaris is one where you see like the fat flaccid uh, bullae, right? Uh, and what's this? Do you remember the sign that goes with that disorder?
1: Mm, no, I don't remember the sign.
0: No, so it's when you rub the blisters, they are very thin and they they easily rupture, and you see the skin wipe off with them, right?
1: Mm, yes, now I remember.
0: Yeah, and that's called Nikolsky's sign. It's a very, you know, that's like a buzzword kind of choice to see. They'll probably not use Nikolsky's name anymore for a question like that. They're probably just going to describe it, right? So they would talk about the, the their very flaccid blistering that the provider wipes or rubs their the hand over it. It easily ruptures.
1: Right, right.
0: Mm -hmm. You can just see the skin almost peeling away, right?
1: Exactly. I think that happens in the pemphigus vulgaris and the toxic epidermal necrolysis as well.
0: Exactly. You know, to kind of turn back to this question, you know, abrasions are very obvious. We see them with trauma. You've roughed up the skin. You see a surface cuts, bruises, and, and scuffs anyway. You know, these blistering disorders... You may see in the setting of like abrasions, uh, like a burn, for instance, but you're not going to see like these associated problems where they have other lesions that haven't, don't have abrasions or areas of like deeper involvement. So I think the the takeaway there is that there's a difference between a skin disease that causes blistering and a friction uh, or, you know, a traumatic blister. You know, sometimes when we have... uh, Trauma cases, you'll see a patient with a broken bone, and they get what are called these flat fracture blisters, uh, just where they have so much bleeding and swelling under the skin that they develop blisters around where the bone has been broken. And you know, typically, you're trying to protect that area and not you know cause more wound trauma. But you know, that is something that you can you you can actually see, particularly on your trauma or orthopedic rotation.
1: Oh, okay, cool. Good to know. I'll look out for that then.
0: <laughs> and then, you know, I I think a good, good things to make a note of are if you're seeing blistering, if you're concerned about something dermatologic or, you know, rheumatologic in nature, they may have, you know, mucous membrane involvement. That That's a good key to know that, you know, if you've got skin erosions, and they have, you know, gum disease as well, or, um, you know, vaginal disease, uh, there, there's going to be problems uh, more systemically. And it's probably not just related to whatever uh, tra- traumatic uh, experience they've had, you know, from falling or something.
1: Um, for step one, we were taught that pemphigus vulgaris was the one to look out for, especially with the oral um, oral mucosa involvement, as opposed to the bolus pemphigoid or some of the other ones. So I'm glad you brought that up because that's a really good differentiating factor when we look at these kind of questions.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, and that's why, why would you think that uh, Pemphicus vulgaris was more likely to have uh, mucous membrane involvement?
1: I'm not sure, actually, that's a good question.
0: But if you think about it, the um, bullus pemphigoid is like a bit of like a milder disease, where you just see like an a entire layer of the, the skin is detaching, correct? Versus like the multiple layers. Isn't that this? So the IgG deposits are linear in bullous pemphigoid and they're more diffuse in, or uh, at the term is like fishnet or uh, chicken wire in um, pemphigus vulgaris. So you know, because it's like a more milder disease, uh, they're less likely to have like a Nikolsky sign and you're less likely to just see that kind of involvement more systemic. You know, that, that's a tough one. I, I don't know if you can rely on that for test questions, but that's anyway how I, I'm trying to remember it from back in the day when I had to learn this.
1: Oh, Okay it's more vulgar, I guess we can think of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. More parts of you.
0: Well, great. I think that, you know, in terms of like a, an abrasion question, that's pretty straightforward. But that's some interesting little tidbits that we were able to add on, right? Right. Any more that you have in mind for like, you know, abrasions, you know, just skin trauma in general?
1: Um, I think just for not for the skin trauma, but for the pemphigoid vulgaris and the bullous pemphigoid, the things that we would focus on were knowing that for pemphigus vulgaris, it was the desmosomes that were being affected. And then for bullous pemphigoid, it was the hemidesmosomes, if I'm not mistaken. But otherwise, um, I think that's it for the most part. Do you have anything else to add?
0: Yeah, well, I think that's, that's correct, right? So pemphigus vulgaris is desmosomes. And bullous pemphigoid is the hemidesmosomes. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what you said, right? Right. I, I think that that's really confusing. <laughs> um, yep. <laughs> so we were talking about vulgaris being more vulgar, uh, being more severe. And I guess, you know, the desmosomes are like the more primary or, you know, versus like hemi or kind of, you know, less important desmosomes, maybe. I don't know. I'm trying to make associations for people that maybe it's not working. <laughs> um <laughs> But great. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's good. For not having a question about bullae, I think we were able to talk about bullae pretty well.
1: right? Yes, I agree.
0: And then the other important thing was like the toxic epidermal necrolysis, which we didn't get into. And to avoid confusing people, let's uh, you know separate that out. Okay? All right. All right, let's do another one.
1: Awesome. So the next question is, a 28-year-old female presents for an annual eye exam. She's found to have 20-25 vision. While reviewing eye health questions, she notes that her eyes sometimes have thick secretions that easily wipe away. The doctor explains that this may occur when glands around the eyes have excess production. Although the majority of sebaceous glands open into a hair follicle, some put out their products directly onto the epithelium. What is the term for this gland in the eyelid? Is it A. Bartholin gland, or B. Meibomian gland, C, runner gland, or D, a cowper gland. So what do you think, Stuart?
0: I think that this is a tough question just because I don't spend a lot of time thinking about glands anymore, but I can kind of indirectly answer it just because there is a pathology that I am going to look up just to double check right here. (laughs) One second. All right, so I just wanted to make sure I said this right, but for everyone, there's this thing called calazion, or a mebomian gland cyst. And that's actually, I think this is a little opto but because these are glands and things it's worth talking about, right? Mebomian glands are, you know, this, essentially, I think they're these glands that they're describing here, these majority of sebaceous glands. That dump out onto directly onto epithelium, right? So that just means that they don't get secreted up through a hair follicle or um, or some other way of expulsion. But in the eye, for instance, you know you need to have like that covering to, for protection in the eye. And if they get uh, occluded, you may develop a cyst of that gland, and uh, they call it a clasion or meibomian cyst. So that's, the, that's actually how I'm getting to this, uh, a little bit of an anatomy question here that I'm not entirely, you know, it, it's hard to say that I remember all of my glands perfectly, but I can talk about some of these. So uh, a mabomian gland, I'm just going, I'm going straight to that answer because I don't have uh, a good background for the other glands. Do you?
1: I just know that the Bartholin gland is located on the sides of the female vagina, uh, the Brenner glands are in part of the intestine, and then the cowper glands are just another name for the bubble urethral glands in the male um, reproductive system. So that's how I was able to know that Mobomian would be the right answer because all the other yeah, ones are so in I different think- parts of the body.
0: In both cases here, we're using uh, other context clues. And while I probably could have told you about a couple of those, it would have been really embarrassing to have confused a, uh, you know, a, a Bartholin gland and a you know, Mabomian gland from like an anatomy standpoint. Um, what do they say here about the, about the Mabomian glands? So they, they're tarsal glands. Um, they're located around the rim of the eyelid, and they secrete Mabum, which is the oily substance that uh, prevents you know, eyes from drying or tears from drying when they run over the eye. So you know, in general, a sebaceous gland will manufacture uh, sebum, and that's a, a what kind of process?
1: Sebum is like a holocrine secretion process. Is that what right. you're asking?
0: Yeah, exactly. That was a read my mind question. Awesome. <laughs> but it, yeah, so when a when the the cells essentially die, they slough off and they expel their products, right? Or they're ruptured as the cells are destroyed, uh, and that's what causes this, you know, secretion to come out into the follicle or uh, whatever um, lumen that it's int- introduced into. I think this talks a little bit about receptors for glands here, but I, I think something that would be good to recur to go over would be, you know, the different kinds of cellular secretion methods. And there there are a lot of them, but there are a couple that are valuable to really know, right?
1: Right. I think the ones that we normally focus on are the holocrine, the apocrine, and the merocrine secretions. And we talked about the holocrine, which is the one that happens with the sebaceous gland, and that's when the cell completely hollows out and it secretes the product. That's how I think we can remember that. Nice. Um, the apocrine is when the part of the cell kind of detaches from the rest of the cell and gets pinched off and then the product's released um, or secreted. And then merocrine um, is where a vesicle actually fuses with the cell membrane and it gets secreted off.
0: Yeah, so it dumps its products through vesicles. And I don't have any good mnemonics for remembering those. Apocrine is supposed to be like Like a a pinching and then merocrine is the fusion. But I don't have like a way to to really remember that that well.
1: Maybe like apocrine is like a part of it comes off or like a pinch. We could think like AP for it starts, apocrine starts with AP and you could think it's a pinch.
0: Mm -hmm. Or it comes off the top. So like the apex. Oh, that's a good one. It's pinched off, right?
1: Yep. that's
0: a good one so yeah i mean that provides some directionality to the cell that i i know that exists but i don't necessarily like (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's getting back into some biology that i don't remember very well at all any other important things that you can mention about these different glands that we're talking about
1: i think that's it i think we hit most of the the high yield stuff unless you have anything else to add
0: no, you know, sebaceous glands, I think it's important to know that they are kind of deep. So like they're in the middle of the dermis, right? So they're not, you know, kind of up in the skin layer necessarily, but they're below. And they, you know, they're usually with the hair follicle. And I think that's the important point that they're trying to get with this is the um, mebomian gland, it just dumps it onto, uh, into the, onto the surface of the eyelid, right? Versus other sebaceous glands would go into hair follicles. And these other kinds of glands, it seems to me that, based on you know what we were talking about, uh, and I could be wrong here, but Bartholin glands, Brunner glands, Cowper glands, they all do this same kind of action, right? I'm not sure if the process is the same, like the type of secretion, but I don't think they you know, these don't rely on hair follicles. So, you know, these are all types of, you know, productions that don't use the hair follicle like a typical sebaceous gland would. So maybe kind of good to notice, but uh, I can't say how high yield it is.
1: Right. Yeah. I think we normally talk for Bartholin glands, um, we normally have to know about Bartholin gland cysts brunner's yeah, glands uh sorry go ahead
0: that's like yeah it's the same as like the the mabobian gland except in a different location right
1: exactly I'm trying to think of for brunner gland i think they like for us to know that the brunner gland is mostly in the duodenum oh wow um not in the jejunum oh, wow. and the ilium yeah so that's how if they have us okay so if they have no like worries histology or pathology reports for a certain part of the intestine and they mentioned Brenner glands, it's how you'll to know that that part of the uh, intestine is the duodenum. That's the kind of questions that I've seen asked the most um, to differentiate what part of the intestine we're in, especially like what part of the small intestine we're in. And then the last yeah. one.
0: How do you, uh, have you seen those hist- the histology of that? Like how that looks if they were to show you a slide in Stella, instead of, um,
1: Yeah, Yeah. if they showed us like histo. Describing it. Yeah, so it kind of looks like um, there's like pits going inside into the um, image, into the like uh, whatever sample they've taken, and it's a little darker within those areas. And I honestly like I don't even know how to describe it because it's just histo is always a little complicated. But you know how they have the openings, like the lighter, clear spaces to represent glands on histo? I don't know if I'm making any sense. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. You have like the the open areas, right? So the gland would have, you know, you would see the cellular nature of it. So it would be a little more basophilic. Yeah. But, and, and there would be open spaces where stuff is being secreted, right? Right. And then the notable part that I, I guess what I was kind of getting at is that it's below the mucosa.
1: Oh, I see. So you, I see. you
0: see the, if you're looking at a, a slide, a histo slide, you'll see the, you You'll see the villi and everything. Um, but then below that layer, you'll see this uh, you know, kind of tubular area that is not that doesn't kind of fit in with the villi. and that's the the Bruner gland.
1: Okay. Great, great, good so, to know.
0: Yeah, knowing that that's a submucosal gland, and if they show you a slide and you just see those tubules deep to the like muscularis mucosa layer uh, in the submucosa, then you're kind of, you, you can know that you're in the duodenal region of the intestine.
1: Okay, good to know.
0: Yeah, sorry, and I, I, you know, um, step one likes that kind of information, and it, you know, it's hard to, uh, I know it's hard to see it in your mind when we're talking about it on audio. Um, but it's a good thing to go look at now that I've kind of tried to describe it for you. Uh, you. Imagine you could do a question where someone would try to describe it without a picture. So take a look and see. Yeah,
1: yeah. it's really helpful talking about it because histo mm-hmm. is very difficult. So, <laughs> And then bubble, that's urethral well. or cowper gland, that's just the last one. But yeah, we can move on now.
0: So this is an edited question that originated from Pearls, But uh, the presentation is a, a four-year-old male presented with his parents to urgent care in a mild distress. Uh, He was playing in his kitchen with his parents while they were cooking dinner, and he slammed the oven door very quickly, causing hot water that was boiling on the stove to fall over spill onto his arm. Uh, His vitals are stable. On exam, he has an erythematous left arm that is tender to palpation. Sensation is intact, and there is no blister formation. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? So the choices are straightforward here. We have first, second, third, or fourth degree burn. So if you were to walk through this, how would you kind of go about tackling a a burn question?
1: Normally, when I look at burn questions, the first thing I look for is to see if there are blisters or not, because I think um, in first degree burns, they don't have any blisters because it's so superficial and it's only in the epidermis so there's no detachment of the um epidermal and dermal layer so since this uh little kid doesn't have any blisters that's something that i would be thinking of and also he has intact sensation so i know that the bliss, the a burn didn't go deep enough to his nerves or his um any of his nerve endings which would be one of the other like uh, fourth degree or third degree burns so I could also mm-hmm. eliminate, eliminate those choices. And second degree is, um, that's the one I think that is probably most confusing because normally when I think like a hot water burn, it would, I, w- I think that it'd be more than just a first degree burn. But again, since there's no blister, I'd stick with first degree. But just to talk about second degree burns, um, they have second degree superficial burns and second degree deep partial thickness burns. And so the superficial is only involving the papillary dermis. And so this would damage the dermal-epidermal junction. So this would actually form a blister. And then for the deep ones, they involve uh, the deeper reticular dermis. This does not form a a blister, but they might have damaged nerve endings. So they might not be painful. In this case, our patient has a painful um, non-blistered burn. So then both of these can kind of be eliminated. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, very, uh, very thorough. So, it, I mean, in the case of a, a child that spills hot water onto their arm, you know, you, you're you concerned about yeah a first or maybe a second degree burn. You know, you're really not having the source to cause something as extreme as a fourth degree burn. And I would say the same for a third degree, though, you know, it is possible. It's different. So this is different being splashed with hot water versus being submerged in hot water there are the cases where you might see a a like a, a child that has been submerged in hot water uh, and it might be like a a case of like a child abuse question kind of disguised as a burn question right where you, you know you can see that their skin folds have not been burned but they've been submerged you know from like the waist down into boiling water or something Uh, And, you know, that can have that, you know, more severe damage. So, you know, this is a little bit different. They've, there, the the story also kind of goes to something a little bit less severe and you know you can kind of think of a first degree burn the same way that you think about sunburn right so you know i'm happy to talk about both of those uh just because i think they're they're kind of relevant to first degree burns as well right but you know when you're thinking uh, about a burn uh you're you're interested like you said in the in the blister formation you're interested as well as the blisters whether or not they have sensitivity. Sensation. And then, you know, redness is kind of gonna be a given if they have a burn. Right. So that that, you know, not as helpful other than to alert you to the fact that they may have a burn. So to talk a little bit about, you know, I, I guess I'll stick with, you know, just regular burns. And then if we wanted to, we can come back and talk a little bit about sunburns as well. But partial thickness burns are typically what you consider your first and second degree burns, right? They're painful. There's the nerves are spared you know, typically you can see that pain, the erythema, the blistering occurring. These burns may heal. And do you understand why that happens?
1: Because like the blood supply isn't that damaged and because it's very superficial?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, it's what kind of what we were talking, you were mentioning about the superficial versus the deep dermal burn. There's still these, you know, the deeper layers of the dermis that are intact And those are going to allow for, you know, epithelial regeneration as like seeds to kind of sprout up and regrow the skin over time Uh, versus like a full thickness burn where you've damaged past the deep dermis. uh, The dermal appendages are no longer intact, and therefore there's not going to be any sort of regeneration capable of occurring at that point, right? Uh, Sometimes these burns, you know, full thickness, like a third or fourth degree burn are like you said, painless because the surrounding nerve endings and fibers have been burned, and you know they, you know they may look severely burned, like 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 as in when you see burnt wood, you see the white parts, like the charring or breakdown, that kind of occurring. So it actually looks like serious burning. To kind of think about different types of burns, you know, what kind of if this was an electrical burn. Uh would that change how you were looking at it?
1: Hmm. I'm not sure actually.
0: Yeah, say he had uh instead of it was playing in the um the kitchen, uh he had taken a knife from the kitchen and gone and uh plugged it into the an outlet on the wall.
1: Oh I see then I think, would it be a deeper burn?
0: Yeah, potentially. Uh, But the more concern is that they're going to have, you know, in addition to their burn, uh, they're going to potentially have something like arrhythmia occurring. They may have, you know, depending on the length and time of the electrical burn, you know, you may be worried about things like, You know, rhabdomyolysis, where the muscles were just over contracting from the electricity and begin to break down. Uh, So they may have, you know, like I said, arrhythmias, blood abnormalities, like from cell death. Uh, And it's going to be important to kind of manage them with fluids as well. And that's actually an important part of all burn management is fluids. Do you know what the formula is for calculating burns, Uh, like the size of burn areas? No, there are different rules for kids versus uh adults, just because their sizes are a little bit different. Um, but it's important to, you know, kind of know about fluid replacement in a burn patient. And in order to calculate fluid replacement, you need a certain formula.
1: Right. Is this like the 918, the percentages, that thing?
0: Yeah, yeah, oh, exactly. Okay. okay, so it all goes to it all comes together now. Yeah, here we are. So the percentages right. It's called the rule of nines.
1: Yes, so, okay. So
0: the rule of nines in children is different from the rule of nines in adults, which I don't want to, I'm not sure if I want to confuse everybody with two different formulas, uh, two different sets of rules. but essentially children have bigger heads, right? <laughs> um, so more of their more of their percentage uh, goes toward their their head and there's less of a percentage toward their legs. The rest is pretty much the same. Otherwise, you know. so in this case, you, know, you, you do 9% for each arm. Uh, you do 9% for the front and back of the leg in an adult, but it's more like seven in a child. And then you give about 18% for their front torso and 18 for their back torso. And then you use that number to calculate how much fluid you're going to give them. Have you heard of this formula?
1: I've heard of the the like the like surface area percentages, but I, I didn't know we use that to calculate for the fluids.
0: Yeah. So what we'll do is, you know, you're really interested in fluid management in these patients and you're going to use, you know, you're probably going to put a Foley in them and measure their urine output. You're going to get labs. You're going to measure how their kidneys are functioning. Because you're really concerned about uh, underhydrating them, or overhydrating them in some cases, but they're going to weep fluid through their their burn, so they they're going to lose a lot of fluid very rapidly, and you have to replace that in a reasonable amount of time. So the formula for doing that is called the Parkland formula, and I think that's worth knowing. It you know it's definitely. Definitely step two testable, um, but it's you know worth introducing for step one as well. But the Parkland formula, essentially you use the rule of nines to determine what the body surface area of the patient is. And then once you know that, you take the patient's weight and multiply it by the surface area of the burn. And then you multiply that by just a factor to calculate the amount of fluid replacement that they're going to need. There's an important, you know, I guess, note about this is we don't necessarily need this formula unless the burn is over 20% of the body surface area.
1: Oh, okay, okay. So,
0: so people are less likely to lose all of this fluid and have this fluid instability if they don't meet the criteria of being over 20%. Right. So for a child who had hot water dumped on their arm, and, you know, in case that wouldn't be a major burn that's going to cause uh, a volume status c- concern, right? But say it was their arm that it was entirely burned um, and was like a fourth degree or third degree burn, and you were concerned about fluid instability, and then you, you, you use the formula, well, that's only going to be 9% of the child's body surface area. So you're not going to necessarily have to utilize this formula.
1: Right. Makes sense.
0: So definitely um, important to know that, you know, I'm not sure how valuable it is in step one.
1: But definitely I need to look at this.
0: Definitely in step step two. It's more, it's definitely kind of like a, a good surgery question. And we think about concerns with burn patients, like, you know, when you have different types of burns, uh, so, say this was a burn around the uh, around the elbow, and it was circumferential and went all the way around the the arm. We would be concerned about. Have, have you heard of the scar that can form around the burn and how what that can lead to? Yeah. Yeah. So, if you have a completed burn that goes all the way around a, an extremity, for instance. Uh, You can have, you know, an eschar formation that occurs and will restrict blood flow through the area, right? And if it restricts blood flow through the area, what what are you going to be concerned about?
1: Like gangrene or necrotic skin diseases, things like that. Ulcers, maybe pressure ulcers.
0: Definitely wound breakdown, wound complications, you know, decreased blood flow, like you're saying the ultimate worst thing though that we're concerned about is going to be compartment syndrome. Oh. So, so if we're restricting the venous return through an extremity or the lymphatic return both, but we are allowing the deep, you know, arterial blood flow to continue, you're going to see, you know, the blood continue to pump into that region but not drain, right? Over time, they're going to develop a, a compartment syndrome. And that's going to be a bigger concern. Right.
1: Right. And that needs immediate surgical um, intervention. Right.
0: Right. So, uh, yeah, uh, we could talk about compartment syndrome just to kind of add, because this is a, you know, a trauma kind of emergency uh, in you know orthopedics or vascular and general surgery kind of stuff but the, you know, kind of in the case of a burn where you have the eschar form around a circumferential area and you get that kind of blood flow concern, what you have to do is you have to go and do what you call like an escarectomy, where you've cut an area to allow for that blood flow to drain, right?
1: Okay. And basically compartment syndrome, just to reiterate, is when there's Too much pressure in a specific muscle compartment, right? That leads to like um, decreased tissue perfusion.
0: Yeah, so important to think about, you know, when you have blood or fluid or any sort of substance, really. But those are going to be the most likely. Most likely is definitely going to be blood. You know, you're concerned about having buildup of that fluid in a certain fascial compartment, and you know, the fascia is a strong layer that stuff doesn't necessarily penetrate through, right? Uh, so it, it's not going to do a good job resorbing. And as, if that area has bleeding into that fascial plane, uh, once it fills up that area, it's going to have nowhere to go. So unlike where y- if you have a slow bleed that's, you know, slowly filling it up uh, and, you know, creating that area, you know, once it compresses, it may compress on the nerves and potentially, you know, make them ischemic. Uh, the muscles may get ischemic. You know, they're really big concerns for things. Do you know the P's of compartment syndrome? No. Yeah, so the the P's are the important, you know, things to think about. This is a great step one uh, fact, so we'll go into it real quick. But there are, you know, I think a few different P's to think about for compartment syndrome, and then that's that's pain. Pain in the case of compartment syndrome is is out of proportion with the, the injury. So you, you look at them uh, and you don't think they should necessarily be that painful. You know, fractures are painful, but, or burns are painful. But if you, you know, if they're wincing in pain and just, you know, rolling around in pain um, and not able to kind of remain like in a calm state, uh, it should be sending off some alarm bells. Uh, particularly if you te- you feel it and it feels tense, you know, this that's like the first sign that you're going to see, right? And when you, you know, when you go to move the joint or extremity and they have an increased pain and it's just, you know, very tensely swollen and you stretch it and it causes even more pain, that's just the nerves saying that something's wrong. So pain is out of proportion with the exam. You know, whenever you move it or touch it, it's just they're they're wincing in pain. Uh, That yeah the the next thing that we'll think about are is pulselessness. So if they have weaker pulses or no pulses, um, that's just because there's so much pressure that blood flow has been restricted and not going not making it into that area or has been pumped into that area. You know, next thing I'll think about are is pallor. So just that the the skin has become kind of grayish. Uh, glossy or white feeling.
1: Okay, so we have pain, pulsen- pulselessness, and pallor.
0: Uh, the next one is going to be paresthesias.
1: Oh, okay, okay.
0: So in the case of paresthesias, uh, you're going to see them have numbness and tingling in the, in the joint, or not just the joint, but the, uh, the extremity distal to wherever the compartment syndrome is occurring, right? So and, and that's actually you know this is kind of too late uh by the time you've gotten past the you know the skin changes, the pulselessness, and you're starting to see numbness or ische- you know that's because there's sensory nerve ischemia. This is still kind of an early finding, but you're you're getting getting to be too late you start you need to to do be doing something about this pretty soon, and that's going to move on to the later finding, which is paralysis.
1: Oh okay, I see. So pain, so. pulselessness, pallor, paresthesia, and paralysis.
0: And then there's one more, and it's, you know, not fair because it's kind of Greek, um, but poikilothermia.
1: Oh, okay, okay. And that's just so. different temperatures on each side, right? Like different yeah. temperatures.
0: Poikilothermia means little temperature, okay. I think. It. So it just means that it's cold. So those are the the P's of compartment syndrome that is high a high yield fact for or high yield facts for step one for sure
1: great awesome i'm glad i also learned something this is all like slowly coming back but i'm glad that we're reviewing this
0: this is good stuff so i'm happy that we can go down these little i know that's not necessarily in the lot in the realm of the question but it's good to talk about
1: yes for sure i agree
0: Yeah. Do we want to move on? Do we think we've covered enough about burns?
1: Yep. I think um, we can move on.